The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning to you all. And uh, I would want to uh, reiterate uh, Randy's uh, welcome to you today. We do know that you could be uh, elsewhere. And it's great to see you all here to consider this critically important subject. Randy has done a wonderful job of introducing it, so I'm going to keep any introductory remarks to a bare minimum and uh, ask you if you would turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16, I just want to read a couple of verses there as we kick off this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 16 and reading verses 19 and 20. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. That you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The issue of justice is a question of life and death, according to Scripture. Justice and only justice shall you do, that you may live. Now, I want to begin by connecting, which I think is very, very important for us this morning, justice and the kingdom of God. And uh, as somebody who studied contemporary missiology for a number of years, uh, this is a very, very important theme, and I want to see how the issue of justice and the kingdom and evangelism are, in fact, uh, initially related by the New Testament. Jesus' earthly ministry actually demonstrated that the good news is more than a piece of abstract information to be communicated Jesus wasn't uh, merely a teacher or a philosopher. It involved actually a concrete manifestation. So in the New Testament, the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And this meant that with Christ, the kingdom coming near did not just mean there was information or a set of propositions to be taught. It meant the forgiveness of sin. It meant the healing of the sick. You'll recall that Jesus on one occasion said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or take up your mat and walk. It meant the freeing of the demon-possessed. It meant care and concern for the poor, the oppressed, and the outcast. It even actually meant the breaking down of historic social barriers between two groups of people that were in enmity toward each other, Jew and Gentile, signaled something of the end of alienation within the human family. This is seen in Ephesians chapter 2, especially with Paul. Not only was the good news of the kingdom an announcement of the reign of a just and merciful God, it was in fact the declaration of victory over the world, over sin, over evil, 
over, over injustice. So that all those who are feeling worn down or worn out by sin and suffering by trials and tribulations are given this assurance of the victory of the kingdom of God. That it's come near in the person of Christ and that it is now advancing in the world. So Jesus is able to say to us, take courage. I have overcome the world. John sixteen thirty three. So the evangel declares, the good news declares and demonstrates the Christian hope, our hope today, isn't just a future hope. A friend of mine back in England used to say, it's not just pie in the sky when you die. Steak on the plate while you wait. It's not just a future hope. It is a real hope now. It's growing. It's a present reality Now, biblical categories can distinguish, of course, but they do not separate in any dualistic sense the physical and the spiritual, the inner and the outer life. There were heresies, even in the time of the early church, that sought to bring a radical separation between the spirit or the inner life and the outer life, the physical world. This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the body is so very, very important. Christ's rule, you see, in Scripture extends over every aspect of life. So that the Christian faith is a comprehensive faith. The rule of Christ, his kingdom, isn't confined to the, our inner piety, nor even to the renovation of church institutions. It embraces all of existence and brings life in all its fullness. That's what Jesus says. John 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. And so his healing of the sick, his deliverance of the demon possessed, and so on, signaled the direction of history, the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. Now that being the case, we would expect that our witness to the gospel would affect social and moral aspects of reality. That the social and moral character of individuals and families and society would be impacted in such a way that we would see the work of the kingdom of God amongst us. And this is what scripture makes clear, that this kingdom power at work in the life of believers doesn't end with our love for God and our personal relationship with God, but it embraces love for neighbor as well. And it's this love of our neighbors that the Bible says proves our love for God genuine. It's not sufficient to say, well, I love God. In fact, the scriptures make clear that if you say we love God but hate our neighbor, our brother, then the truth is not in us. The love of God is not in us. So if we labor for legislative and political justice, if we are concerned for the rights of the unborn and the falsely accused, if we're concerned to give physical help to the needy, these are, uh, in principle, of course, distinguishable from proclaiming the redemption of Christ at the cross. But they cannot and must not be artificially separated In the same way that faith without works is dead, according to St. James, so words without relationship 
to live deeds are empty, according to the Bible. James says, I will show you my faith by what I do. Just as our deeds without any relationship to words or meaning are mute. Now, that doesn't mean that word and deed must somehow mechanically come together every time we talk about the gospel in order for them to be authentic. It simply means that our words and our deeds have to be consistent with each other. That's all it means. That what we say about Christ and the gospel must be borne out in our lives and the way we live, and the way the church lives the gospel. The preaching of the gospel of righteousness cannot be divorced from the practice of righteousness and justice. So the church is to continue then in the footsteps of the Lord, who is, according to Scripture, the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets as we herald the comprehensive kingdom rule of Christ in faith and life. And we enlist others to join this kingdom community that is reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the gospel. The good news here and now is that when men and women turn to Jesus Christ, evil and injustice are overcome in his name by his word, and the kingdom breaks in. This happens most visibly, supposedly, in the life of God's church, the kingdom people. The church of Jesus Christ, you see, is central to the mission of God. It's not peripheral. It's not something that's supposed to be on the edge It's central to God's purpose in the world. The Christian church is the new humanity in Jesus Christ. Christ, after all, is the second Adam. We're born anew into the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We are his new humanity. The called out people of the king. And as such, we are to have a deep concern for public justice or righteousness. And that's because the Bible makes clear that Christ's rule is going to hold sway over all things. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And what's the last enemy that's going to be defeated? Death. That's the last one. John Stott, the late Anglican evangelical in the UK said, the church is meant to be the kingdom community, a model of what the human community looks like when it comes under the rule of God and a challenging alternative to secular society. Now, this this broader vision that I'm talking about has historically been recognized by large segments of the evangelical confessional church. But over the last century or so, The rise of various strands of liberalism and also millennialism began to undermine this essential unity that our forebears saw in proclaiming and embodying the gospel of the kingdom. That is, justification preached and justice worked together. This historic process The abandonment of this unity has been called the great reversal by historian Timothy L. Smith regarding this changing attitude of evangelicals towards justice and compassion issues. 
And so it is critical that Christians in our time recover this full-orbed understanding of the gospel and its implications for justice and righteousness if we're going to see a revival of our faith in the West and our culture turn aside from its drift into paganism. Now that's the, in a sense, a a summary statement of the need for the integration of the preaching of justification, of, of the proclamation of Christ's atonement, and the need to live in terms of righteousness and justice. The difficulty, however, is the criterion for justice. As Randy said in the introduction, it's not so much a problem that uh, Christians hear the words righteousness and justice and think those are important and that we should be concerned with them. The issue is, what do those look like and how are they to be defined? We can't just throw around these words without giving them a meaning. And if they are not biblically grounded, what happens is that the task is inadvertently, sometimes even deliberately, pursued with non-Christian presuppositions. And when we work with a faulty understanding of justice, even if we have good intentions, it can only lead in the end to harm and to something which militates against the gospel. And so we have to be careful in considering the meaning of justice today, especially our understanding of this popular buzzword, social justice. Now, one of our guest speakers today, my friend Dr. Sandlin, who we're very glad has come up all the way from California, he drove here. took him two weeks. That's not because we couldn't afford to pay his airfare. It's because he wanted to drive. Now, he's rightly pointed out that social justice has become jello nomenclature. Do you understand what that means? Let me interpret that. It means it's a jelly word that... Until somebody asks you to define it, you know what it is. It's a bit like what Augustine said about time. If nobody asks me what it is, I know. And then as soon as somebody asks me, I don't know anymore. And this accounts perhaps for the fact that justice is so rarely addressed by theologians in the field of missiology. And yet, this term is so very popular in contemporary literature. It's popular, very popular in our seminaries today. In our seminaries today, this this need to do justice, to oppose structures of injustice, and so on. This language is everywhere. Now, the Bible does not use the term social justice. There's a reason for that. It was coined by social progressives about a century ago. But I do want to note that obviously all justice is social because you only need justice in society. It's obvious that justice has social implications because you only need it in society. In fact, I would say even in our relationship with God, which is giving God his due... Justice is relational and thereby social. We have to give God his due. That's justice for God. And that means the term social justice is really a redundancy from a biblical point of view. You don't need to say social justice when we talk about biblical justice. 
Now, despite the deafening silence on the definition of justice that we experience today, all discussions of justice obviously are presupposing a standard of justice. It has to rest on some criterion or another. So when you hear it in the media and when you hear it at the university or in the seminary or in the church, there is an unspoken criterion for justice. Sadly, in my studies over the years in this area, one of the most common themes that comes up is that the Bible cannot tell us what justice is or how to exercise it. And that means, of course, that something other than God's word is defining justice for those people. However, in biblical faith, law and justice are inseparable. Jesus declares in Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot of the law to become void. Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot of the law to become void. And the social disaster of our age is that civil governments and many churches have abandoned true justice because they've separated God's word from justice and sought to make void the law. And what that means is that our contemporary approximation of justice becomes simply what the state enacts. The humanistic view means that justice is no longer basic to society by virtue of being part of a fundamental order of things created by the sovereign Lord. Instead, justice is at best social policy. It's pragmatic. So justice is what the state does in terms of its social philosophy for most people today. This error means it's critically important that when Christians speak about justice, we have some idea about what the Bible means by justice. And that means, of course, that we have the choice between grounding justice in God or in merely human conventions as our ultimate referent. That simply means that we either say that there is a transcendent source of justice in God, or that human imagination about justice is going to govern our social relationships. So either there is a standard of justice that is objective and transcendent, it's not merely subjective, or human imagination, which is constantly changing, will govern it. And so when we attempt to define justice apart from God's word, it leads very quickly to autonomous, rationalistic, moral theories and to relativism. And justice then becomes merely social beliefs that have triumphed in any particular age. The meaning of justice then must be grounded. Today... Justice seems to have little or no connection with true biblical justice. Now, from the biblical point of view, justice is something that is revealed by God that is intrinsic to his character and triune nature. 
Let's think about who God is for a moment. He is the all-personal, all-relational God grounded in love. God is love. Now, justice is fully actualized as an attribute of God. That is to say, justice is not a standard beneath God, which he arbitrarily thought of one day. Neither is it something that is above God to which he refers himself, which he refers himself to. Rather, it is an expression of his own being and nature. It is not something that is evolving or changing or being discovered over time. And that is because God is infinitely and perfectly just in the relational community of the Trinity, as each member gives the other members their due as God. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father magnifies the Son. The Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, takes what is Christ and makes it known to us. Every person in the Godhead gives the other member their due. That's the foundation of justice. God is not defined by his relationship to his creation. He's not just merely in his dealings with human beings. Justice is something that is fully actualized before creation. It's actualized in the being of God himself. That is, it's part of his character and nature. And as a result, it's something that is, dis- is disclosed or revealed by God. Now, the revelation of his just nature is found, of course, in a distorted form in the human conscience. Why do I say distorted? It's distorted because the Bible says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that our consciences are seared, that our ideas about justice on their own are not sufficient to define justice because as a sinner, my sense of justice is not perfect. It's broken. In fact, as a sinner, I prefer injustice when it comes to myself, generally speaking. It's also found in human traditions. So in various human traditions, because of God writing his law into the being of man, we find aspects in various human traditions of God's justice expressed, but in a distorted or broken form. This Paul makes clear in Romans 1 and 2. But it's found with clarity, justice is found with clarity in the revealed word of God and in the only just man to ever walk the face of the earth. The only truly just man, Jesus Christ, who is the living Torah. He's the perfect manifestation. He is the exact imprint of God's being and nature. And this is why in the gospel, St. Paul says, God's righteousness or justice is revealed. In the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, God's righteousness is revealed, Romans 1, 17. So our concerns for justice must be pursued from a robustly biblical standpoint, and only if this is biblically rooted in God's righteousness is 
the gospel and the righteousness or justice of God truly being revealed in our witness. If we distort justice and righteousness, the gospel, the righteousness of God is not being revealed in our gospel. Inevitably then, the pursuit of justice as a relational concept takes many relational forms, personal, familial, societal or governmental, and it inescapably involves, therefore, engagement with the polis or the city or the state to see unjust laws and statutes and judgments that oppress, abuse, or propagate injustice revoked and replaced with righteous laws and judgments. And this is why we have to be able to define justice as a people, as Christians, because if we can't define justice, how do we identify injustice? How can you and I oppose injustice if we do not have a standard of justice? If justice is what the state enacts in any given period or era, how do you know what justice really is or injustice is? If William Wilberforce did not have a standard of justice, our evangelical forebear, and the Clapham sect and all the work that they did wasn't just the abolition of slavery, it was numerous social reforms, what they called the reformation of manners. If they had no standard of justice, how would they have been able to identify kidnapping and enslavement as injustice? Because for the pagan world, nothing was more common than mass slavery. Now, it may help at this point to note that another way of speaking speaking about social justice, or more properly public justice, is social order. Every social order rests on a social theory. And whether our social order is Christian or Islamic or Hindu or Buddhist or humanistic, it has a creedal basis and it presupposes some kind of ultimate concern or religious perspective. And behind every religious perspective is a God concept. That is a source of sovereignty. And that source of sovereignty is either going to be incarnated in the Lord Jesus Christ and revealed in his word, or it will be incarnated somehow in some other way, usually in the state. That is to say, transcendence, uh, sovereignty rather, can either be transcendent or imminent. Our God is either transcendent or he's going to be purely imminent. Where justice is merely an aspect of being, of man's self-discovery. And so really what we're dealing with today is a conflict between two concepts, between God's sovereignty and the claimed sovereignty of man, most commonly or typically expressed in the state. That's not because the state is evil, the state has a place, it's supposed to be subject to God. But when the state disconnects itself and its laws and justice from God, it becomes a rival source of sovereignty. So the source of biblical justice is transcendent, and it's not something that you and I arrive at after social experimentation. It's something that is disclosed and revealed. So let's finally get around to defining biblical justice. Well, the original meaning of the word justice is coextensive with Righteousness. They're interchangeable, related themes that very often come together in the same verse, like Psalm 33, verse 5, Job 37, 23. 
They are related terms because justice is an aspect of God's righteous character, as are love and mercy and compassion. Now, in the Old Testament, what was a just person? A just person was simply a righteous person who did what was right in accordance with God's revealed law. Ezekiel 18, 5 through 9, you can see that. And in the New Testament, likewise, the Greek word dikasini can be translated as righteousness or justice. Either is legitimate. So you could actually translate Matthew 5, 6 as referring to the blessed ones who hunger and thirst after justice. Equally, Matthew 6, 33, using that same word, exhorts us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice. Justice is therefore directly associated with the kingdom or reign of God, and it's something we're to seek earnestly in word and deed. And that's because it has a a vertical and a horizontal dimension. Vertical because it's God-oriented, and horizontal because it has a people-oriented direction, because it is tied to God's law, and God's law is tied both to God and to our neighbor. The common Hebrew term for justice, mishpat, is found more than 200 times in the Old Testament, and its central meaning is the rule of law. Rule of law, which should give you an indication immediately about the Western legal tradition and the source of Western freedom. The rule of law. Leviticus 24.22 says you shall have the same rule, mishpat, The same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Justice here requires impartiality and proportional due restitution, irrespective of people group, social status, or creed. Justice is to give people their due, be that punishment, protection, or care. In fact, the English word Justice from the Latin justice literally means upright. Upright. So the biblical concept of justice in summary is this. Rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accordance with the righteous standards of God's moral law. To render impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accordance with the righteous standard of God's moral law. Justice then implies ensuring people receive their due. And if they've not received it, a justice has, an injustice has occurred. So Paul clearly tells us in Romans 13, 7, render to all their due. Render to all their due. In that same passage, Paul tells us actually that love is the fulfillment of the law. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He defines love for us. He tells us to render to all their due. Now, in Scripture, sometimes what is due is determined by who the person is. How do we determine what is due? Well, sometimes it's who the person is. So sometimes God requires us to Give a render to certain individuals their due, irrespective of their character. So we're to honor our parents. Honor your father and your mother. 
We have to give justice to our parents because of who they are. To governing authorities. Because of who they are. To church leaders, elders, because of who they are, and so on. So sometimes justice is determined by who the person is. At other times, it's determined by what the person does. I.e., we're to give due respect, for example, to, Scripture says, those elders who rule well. So there, we give uh, due uh, respect to those who have done something. Murderers and criminals are also dealt with in terms of what they do against persons and property. So sometimes it's simply who the person is. Sometimes it's what they do. We see that in Exodus 21 and 22. Justice rendered in terms of what people do requires the biblical principle of proportionality, what the Bible calls the lex talionis, the... uh, principle of proportional retaliation. Proportional retaliation. And so biblical justice deals with the differences in retributive or punitive and then restorative responses to various injustices that are caused accidentally, by negligence, or deliberately. That's one aspect. At other times, righteousness or justice is simply required in terms of who God is. For example, tithing to God. The tithe is his due. And the Bible says to withhold the tithe is theft from God. So you can actually steal from God. (laughs) And that's an injustice. In the same way that me stealing from you would be an injustice, to withhold God's tithe, the Bible says, is theft from God. So that's required in terms of who God is. Giving to the poor is actually a form of giving to God. It's not because they belong to an identifiable group called the poor, which is just a, an abstraction, which doesn't deal with individuals at all. Giving to the poor is justice for God. It's not because they are poor that we give to them. Neither is it because they've done something to merit it, what they do. Rather, it's because God's law requires it out of compassion for the vulnerable. Because that's who God is. Some of God's laws are to be enforced by the state. That is, they ensure justice. Your tithe is not collected by the state. It's not enforced. They, They take a much bigger tithe than God. It's about 50%. We'll come to that later, perhaps. Some laws are to be enforced by the state, but that's few in the Bible. Most of God's law is enforced in terms of covenantal blessings and cursings by God alone. The tithe is one of them. Now, in the ancient world, Aristotle taught that justice could be understood in general terms of universal justice, encompassing the ideas of virtue and charity and morality, and also in terms of particular justice. So universal justice and particular justice. And these had, this particular justice had three basic elements, which for the sake of discussion is a useful categorization. He talked about commercial justice, 
concerned with fairness and honesty in economic exchange, remedial justice concerned with criminal and civil law, and distributive justice concerned with apportioning goods and burdens among human beings. Now, I don't say that because I'm concerned with Aristotle. I'm not, really. But in the Bible, I use that because that's the, that's the general way in which we still speak about the areas of justice. In the Bible, God's law alone defines justice, righteousness, and grace, and deals with remedial justice and economic exchange and distribution and charity. These are all important in the Bible. And that's why Scripture speaks to many of the issues that we're dealing with in the West right now. The pandemic of sexual violence, for example, in pornography. The exploitation through uh, kidnapping and enslavement, particularly of young women today. The problems of the systemic poverty, the collapse of criminal justice, fatherlessness and the destruction of the family, leaving welfare, orphans and widows, the rampant moral degeneracy that we see around us, the murder of the unborn, the legalization, normalization and promotion of homoeroticism and prostitution and physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, among various other social ills. You could add to that list. Interestingly, though, when you talk and hear about social justice today, when people refer to the struggle for justice, it's almost always nothing more than a narrow distributive justice that people have in mind. You've got all of these issues of justice, and you look at our evangelical forebears, and you see their widespread concern for justice in multiple spheres of life. And yet today you hear the cry for social justice, and what is it about? Distributive justice. Ronald Nash notes, he says, social justice is viewed as that species of distributive justice concerned with the distribution of burdens and benefits within society as a whole... A distribution that is usually controlled by political authorities. So I want to address specifically now social justice and the idea of positive rights. The concept of social justice in the terms that I've just outlined then has little relationship to biblical justice. Social justice claims to be essentially democracy. Equality. Demos, people, kratos, power. People, power. And it involves primarily a victimization mentality where we blame a bad environment, certain groups, abstract classes within society for all the injustice and inequality that is around us because of unjust social and political structures perpetuated by the powerful and the oppressive. That is invariably the way social justice is framed. And typically in this vision, everyone has the alleged inalienable right as a matter of justice to equal access to land, resources, education, opportunity for betterment, marriage, a good job, adequate income, as well as various social services, and increasingly a right to positive outcomes in all of those endeavors. This ever-expanding litany of demands does not define justice. It merely represents a modern doctrine of entitlements. 
He has to be asked, for example, whatever the merits we see in universal education and various social services, what that actually has to do with being just, that is, giving a person what they are due in terms of Scripture, the rule of law, mishpat, righteousness. And this highlights the difference between biblical justice that deals with negative rights and today's social justice that offers inherently impossible positive rights. And this is a very, very important distinction. Negative rights mean that we have a conditional right to certain protection. Let me give you an example. In one sense, we say that everyone has the right to life. And as Christians, we believe that about the unborn. We talk about the right to life. But that is a right in Scripture not to be murdered or unjustly harmed as people made in the image of God. It is not an unconditional right to life. For example, if I'm a serial killer, do I have a right to life? Not according to the Bible, you don't. Take another example. Do I have a right to food? Well, if the food is my property, I have a right not to be robbed of it according to the Eighth Commandment. But if I am not willing to work, do I have a right to food? You hear what I said? Not willing to work. Not not able to work. Not willing to work. Not according to St. Paul. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. When was the last time you heard a sermon on that subject, on the issue of justice? According to God's law, unless, for example, another example, unless we want to use the truth to do evil, we have a right to the truth. You shall not bear false witness. Now, of course, there are some silly people who say that, you know, well, you know, we've always an obligation to the truth. So if the Nazis came to my door and I was hiding Jews in the cupboard, I would have to tell them where they were. I don't owe the truth to somebody who is intent on doing murderous evil with it. But in all other circumstances, I have a right to the truth. You shall not bear false testimony. But does that give me the right to be called an honest person if I'm a liar? Surely not. In short, rights are not guarantees that something will be provided for us, but guarantees that what is ours by the gift of God or by providence or by prudence is not going to be unjustly taken from us. Thus, they are not positive rights, but negative rights. And that's why the Bible's commandments are largely framed, you shall not, not you shall. Biblical negative rights, you see, are realistic and realizable. They are equal and they are universal for the stranger, for the alien among you, as well as for the citizen. Whereas positive rights are not. Positive rights want to equalize everything, that is, resources, opportunities, outcomes, which is by definition impossible. Why is it impossible? Well, firstly, this is God's creation, not ours. And he's the one who makes men to differ. But let's just be a little bit more detailed than that. The things that make us unequal in nearly all respects, and that makes for the marvelous diversity and beauty of the human family, they can't be equalized. If you're as ugly as my colleague Scott Masson, for example, 
It is not possible to take the beauty of somebody else and give it to Scott. He won't mind me saying that. He's not here. You see, we can't equalize beauty and intelligence. We can't equalize our family background. We can't equalize the place and time of our birth. All of those things have an impact upon what happens to me in my life. Equality is simply not in view in biblical justice because it is a term that belongs only in the realm of mathematics, not anthropology. The equal sign means the equation balances because that's just abstract numbers. But people aren't abstract numbers. We're human beings and we're all different in almost every respect. We're differentiated one from another. If it were possible to take IQ or beauty or physical strength from one person and redistribute it to others to even things out, would that be just? Would that be an expression of justice? Social justice, you see, as conceived today, aims at creating interchangeable, indistinguishable human beings in a forced egalitarian world which makes it incompatible with liberty... It destroys charity and generosity and essentially ruins virtue. You see, one would not need to act justly in such a utopian world because this perverse concept is enforced upon you, destroying ethics. You don't have to choose the right because everything is equalized by force. Those who want to implement social justice, you see, friends, want to play God, who causes all things to differ and makes one vessel for this purpose and another for that purpose, according to Romans 9. By destroying distinctions and by denying God's providence, man seeks to realize his version of justice, which is hell on earth. Now, biblical justice, by contrast, is about the restoration of God's order, not the creation of man's equalized utopia. Now, avoiding this fact, some Christian thinkers and Christian writers, in fact, I would say the majority writing on the subject of social justice, seem to largely ignore biblical text and semantics in seeking out proof texts to support their social theory. And they don't largely distinguish different types of justice that the scriptures are referring to. So we just hear the word justice and you hear a quote from the prophets here and the odd citation from the law here. And it's never placed in the context of God's total word. For example, nowhere does scripture require favoritism to the rich or the poor in the courts in the application of God's law. What it's concerned with is that the person who is well-off is in a better position to manipulate the courts, to manipulate the law, to pervert justice. It's in a position, for example, to offer a bribe, as happens throughout much of the world. The well-off are in a position, perhaps, to hire a very smart lawyer, and the poor deprived of decent legal representation. God is concerned with the perversion of justice in favor of either the rich or the poor. 
Deuteronomy 16, as I read, concerning the role of judges, says, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a, a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. Which means if we pervert justice, what's the implication? We have a culture of death. Clearly what God requires of us is strict obedience to his standard of justice. Showing partiality to the rich or poor and the acceptance of bribes are attempts to pervert the course of justice and are unacceptable because God requires the rule of his law, not our emotions, not our personal preferences to govern us. And so biblically, justice and righteousness are what God's word declares them to be and nothing else. Justice is inseparable from right, the righteousness of the law which are joined together, righteousness and justice and God's law in Scripture, which Jesus expounds for us in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. For Scripture, the covenant law represents the righteousness of God. And without this law, there can be no grace because there would be no justice. You can't speak, I can't speak of the grace of God unless I know what the justice of God is. These are interrelated concepts. Grace to the sinner in the gospel and the poor and oppressed in society, the downtrodden and the destitute, is not antinomian, it's not anti-law. It's an aspect of God's righteousness and love and is central to his law, which Jesus makes clear in Matthew 23, 23. It is an act of grace that God gave his law to his people. He gave his Justice and righteousness is covenant law, the greater to the lesser. That was a gift of grace. For fallen people in a fallen world, to receive God's law is an act of mercy and an aspect of our redemption. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So when we give voluntarily to the poor and the needy, we do so not by giving them what they are due, that is justice proper, but as an act of kindness and grace that gives God his due because he requires it. God requires it. Mercy is basic to the law. Because the essence of God's justice is restitution and the restoration of his order and purposes for creation. And that's how we need to think about justice. Justice is about the restoration and renewal of God's purposes for all creation. God's mission is to restore all things to their original beauty and goodness. And since this is the goal of his justice, salvation and mercy become, and compassion become a part of it. Salvation and mercy and compassion are an aspect of the restoration of God's order. If you received only exact justice, where would you be today? No, you're a recipient of mercy, so am I, of compassion, of the grace and kindness of others and of God in the restoration of his order. 
If righteousness is to reign over the world, then redemption and mercy are necessary. And so the righteousness of God's law has to reign in the Christian life because justice is part of God's covenant faithfulness and salvation is his covenant act. So when I respond to God's mercy, I obey his word and show mercy. We just can't separate them in God's word. I'm a recipient of mercy and grace. I show mercy and grace. Thus, in the end, it is only regenerate men and women who truly know the meaning of justice. The Bible says that. We understand justice completely, the Bible says. The wicked don't. We're able to lead the way on the path of righteousness in our world, not by self-righteousness, because of the righteousness of God that has been revealed. Justice is done when God's word is obeyed because justice is the restoration of his order And righteousness is obedience to his word. And that means that if we're going to see justice done in the world, we need a diffusing of the gospel where regenerate men and women engaged in every area of life and thought from biblical principles for the glory of God express the righteousness and justice of God. It requires whole communities to come under the hearing of the gospel and glad obedience to God's law so that justice is made manifest. Now, of course, some people will only ever obey God's law outwardly. They'll have just an an outward lip service to justice. Some are going to be restrained by God's law from wickedness, that is crime. Some will rejoice in the justice and righteousness of the Lord, which revives the soul, according to Psalm 19.7. But only when God's commandments are seen as the bulwark of justice and righteousness will justice actually be done for the poor or anybody else. You know, in the name of justice today, we're implementing eco-justice policies all over the world. And the people that suffer most under them in the name of climate change are the poor. Because energy prices are pushed up Food becomes more and more expensive, and the poor suffer. And yet it's done in the name of salvation for the planet. Justice is concerned with God's righteous law in Scripture. And in the Bible, here's where the social justice advocates of today go wrong. Poverty is not the defining issue that they make it. Neither is poverty seen as the worst thing to befall a person. Proverbs 28.6 says, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Better to be poor and walk in integrity than to be rich and crooked. What matters most is integrity before God and a righteous life. On the other hand, if the liberal definition of justice is correct, how can the poor themselves live righteously and do justice since they've got no wealth to redistribute? If righteousness and justice is redistribution of your wealth and sin is to to possess wealth in the face of poverty, then the poor are incapable of being just. All they can do is agitate for redistribution. If justice is about economic redistribution, you see, those who deem themselves poor cannot live just lives. 
The Bible tells us it is by the gospel that we are made rich in God. Whatever our social or our economic status, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. In fact, the apostle Paul spoke of his own physical and economic poverty in service of the gospel, he said, as making many rich. For though Christians face economic hardship as having nothing, he says, yet possess everything. 2 Corinthians 6.10. For St. Paul, covetousness is a snare. 1 Timothy 6.9. Covetousness is a snare. You shall not covet. It's the 10th commandment. However, he says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. In addition, the biblical answer to man's powerlessness, as it is called, is not Wealth transfers in the name of liberation. A man may be wealthy and exceedingly influential and yet impotent in life. All you have to do is look at celebrity culture in the Western world and see that all the wealth and, and fame in the world that everybody covets does not make a person happy or fruitful in life. The end result, you see, of all rebellion against God is frustration and powerlessness. Powerlessness and frustration are the result of a rebellion against God in any culture. There is only one true source of power in the Bible. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts chapter chapter 1, verse 8. Rich or poor, we can be clothed with power from on high. The Bible says in Luke 24, 49, because God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, 2 Timothy 1, 7. When Christians, you see, preach Christ as the deliverer and the Holy Spirit as the source of life and power, when we live these realities out in our lives, it is clearly seen that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, that does not mean there is not a concern in the Bible for the poor. The concern for the poor and oppressed is emphatic in the Bible, which is why God insists on justice. It's why he insists on compassionate giving. Tithes and offerings are given freely for the relief of the poor with the promise of God's blessing for godly living and his curse upon the neglect of this responsibility. Social financing has to be provided. We do have to provide social financing. The argument is, how is it to be provided? How do we provide social financing? It cannot be through state-sanctioned theft, however well-intentioned that may be, by progressive taxations, windfall taxes, death taxes, inheritance taxes, property taxes, where people's wealth is plundered to redistribute it so that you and I today work as slave wards of state for six months of the year. 
in a country where there was no such thing as income tax a century ago. And look at the welfare economies of Europe. I come from a welfare economy. I grew up in one. The NHS and the welfare economies of England England and the European countries, they are collapsing. They are collapsing today. And the welfare mobs were out just this week in Belgium. Turning over trucks and firebombing shops because of austerity, which simply meant that the government was trying to balance the books pay back debts where we have just indebted ourselves to the next, the next, the next generation in the name of welfare. That's not to say there aren't corrupt bankers, people fiddling with the economic exchange rates in the markets. We know all of that. They must be brought to book for their criminality. But the answer is not theft from others. If you, if you said today, well, Joe Boot, he looks rich. That's a really nice jacket. Hugo Boss. And you don't know that I was given it. You do now. Okay. So you might think, oh, look at that. He's got money. Look at that wallet. That's fat. There's so much cash in there, he's not going to notice if I take 40 bucks. I'm poor. I haven't got a Hugo Boss jacket. And you take that $40 out of my wallet. Most people in this room would say, you're a thief. You need to restore that money. But if the state does it, we say it's social justice. You see, we are commanded by Christ to give freely to the needy without display and without hypocrisy. Not to engage in the politics of covetousness, envy, and class war. There is no indication in Scripture that charitable giving is participation in sinful political structures or that justice in society ever eliminates the need for charity, for generosity, for kindness, for compassion. This is because equalization is not the goal of biblical justice. Now, if justice in the Bible meant total communism, conceptually, though not in reality, you could eliminate justice in a fallen world. Charity, rather, in a fallen world. But, of course, we all know that communist states never realized Justice never realized equality. In the Decalogue, there is a prohibition against all forms of theft and covetousness which presuppose private property. If God says you shall not steal and you shall not covet, that presupposes that others have what you don't have. It's found along with the requirement of the tithe. Three tithes in all about 15 to 18% of a person's annual income, in which one-tenth of that went for the priest for worship, that's the sanctuary, and the rest was for education and various forms of welfare, social provision through the Levites. And so in biblical justice, to abandon God's law and means of provision for the needy, that is the tithe, and to replace it with status justice and its provision through institutionalized robbery is profane and double theft from God. And in the history of Christendom, the church provided for health, welfare, and education through the tithe. That's our history. And then people did not see uh, charity as an entitlement of the state, that those who have more than them owe them. Rather, they had gratitude towards God. 
for the kindness and goodness he was expressing to them through his people. That's how social provision was made. I could give a whole lecture on that. I can't. This is my final quotation. George Grant has summarized the issue well. He says this. The reason scripture is so specific about the implementation of charity is precisely due to the unique interrelationship of law and love. Biblical love is not naive, guilt-provoked sentiment. Biblical love is not a feeling. Biblical love is the compulsion to do things God's way, living in obedience to his unchanging, unerring purposes. Biblical law is the encoded mercy, grace, and peace of God. It is love standard. Thus, biblical law does not lock us into heartless, soulless exercises in social control. Love and law are inseparable, working in tandem to the glory of Christ and his kingdom. And when they are evidenced as such, the needs of the poor will be met by faithful adherence of authentic Christianity in word and deed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.